Hey everyone, welcome to the Inspire to Fire podcast. My name is Chris and I'm your host. And today we have Cindy Zuniga from Zero Base Budget on the show. And she's going to be discussing how she paid off $215,000 of debt. And I think this episode is going to be so valuable because we go into how she did it, her money story as well. But then we also get into what's a good student loan debt to income ratio. We find a balanced path to FI, something that she's applying to her life. And we get into the different investment options depending on where you live. For example, she lives in New York. So I ask her questions and she gives us her opinion on how she would invest based off of, for example, the real estate market being so high in New York. So we're going to get into that. And then lastly, we also discuss increasing financial literacy in the community, something that's big for her. So I'm very excited to share this episode with you guys, and I hope you guys find a lot of value in it. So without further ado, hi, Cindy, welcome to the show. Hi, Chris. So Cindy, I your story is amazing, and thank you so much for joining the show. Um, mm-hmm. I wanted to kind of get into your background a little bit and just share with the audience, you know, your story, your money story. Yeah, sure. Um, So I'm Cindy Zuniga. I am the founder of Zero Based Budget Coaching, and I uh, am also a full-time lawyer. And so my money story starts with, you know, I am the daughter of immigrants. I was uh, born and raised in a very low-income community in the Bronx. And so my money story kind of starts there because, uh, I mean, I think with most of us, our money story starts from childhood. And uh, a real keen awareness of the lack of money, but not really knowledge on the management of it. And so the reason why that's important is because, uh, you know, fast forward many, many years later, uh, I go to law school and I graduate with over $200,000 of debt. And most of my debt was from student loans. Um, And, you know, it was kind of a rude awakening of just, you know, obviously graduating from law school, having to adult, but now really having to adult in a serious way, as in having to, having to, you know, pay back all of this, uh, you know, uh, student debt that I had taken on. And so from there, I kind of, you know, that moment, I call it, you know, like my aha moment. Um, that moment is really what propelled my journey into, financial literacy. And, uh, you know, after all of my years of schooling is when I decided to take on this much more, I think, not really challenging in the sense of like the way that we think of something maybe challenging, like, you know, school and and books and everything, but more challenging as in like, I had to really look in myself on, okay, why do I need to become better with money? And it wasn't just so that I you know, so that I'm not broke. It was really so that I can be able to help out my family, um, you know, so that I can be able to give back to my community so that I can just by myself, uh, you know, be a responsible adult, of course, but also possibly create generational wealth, um, which is obviously something really important to me. And yeah, that led me to uh, launching my platform, Zero Based Budget, uh, where I'm mainly active on uh, social media, well, through Instagram. And, uh, you know, I've built there a community of 
like-minded people in a very, you know, judgment-free zone that just want to learn about money, you know, get better with finances. And I also launched my coaching business uh, early last year. And I, you know, I, I love it. It's, it's really fun being able to sit down with someone and talk about money in a very honest way um, so that they can, you know, best achieve their financial goals. Very cool. Yep. And I agree. I think talking about money in an honest way is what we, we all need to kind of remove yeah. the taboo away from speaking about money. Right. Uh, but right. Uh, yeah. And you spoke about generational wealth, which I want to get into, but before that, I want to take a step back and just talk about the amount of student loan debt that you had. I yeah. had a similar amount, not as much, but still it's daunting. And yeah, I was a little bit surprised myself when I finished school to have that amount of debt. So that was an eye opener for me. Were you aware that you were going to come out of school with that amount of debt? And, and then did you outweigh the risk? I mean, the uh, income versus the student debt you know, ratio that you, or was that something that you just yeah. wanted to be a, an attorney and that's what you were going to do? Yeah, well, so I'll answer the second question first. So to be very honest, I, when I went into law school, I had a mentality of like, I'm going to do whatever I need to do to become a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And if I have to take on six figure debt, then so be it. And I didn't go into law school thinking that I wanted to go into the private sector. So, you know, my general rule of thumb is to take out the kind of debt that would be commensurate to your starting salary. So if you take on $100,000 of debt for grad school, you know, are, is the starting salary in your field $100,000? Because that's going to give you a good, I think, a good balanced ratio on being able to actually tackle your debt. Um, now, that is the advice that I give now. And that is the advice that I very much, uh, you know, I do very much believe to be true generally, especially when it comes to, you know, higher education, whatnot, like more like grad programs, I guess. But, you know, for me, that wasn't really something I was thinking about at all. I just knew that I wanted to go to law school. Um, but I was mindful of trying to not take out just all of the debt in the world. So I actually chose my law school because believe it or not, I did get a half tuition scholarship. Wow. Um, now people think like, wow, you had a half tuition scholarship and you still graduated with that kind of debt. And it's like, yeah, law school is extremely expensive. My law school now, the cost of attendance for my law school now, I think is about like $92,000 a year, Ouch. you know? And back then it was, I think, I think it was something like 75,000, you know? And I mean, I didn't graduate law school, like you know, 10, 12 years ago, I graduated, what, five years ago, mm -hmm. you know, and the cost of attendance has just driven up uh, dramatically. So I guess to answer that question is, you know, I was certainly mindful of the income aspect um, and, and mindful of wanting to keep my loans lower as, as, as low as I could, you know, which I mean, you think $150,000, $200,000, how is that low? It's not, but, you know, um, but I think that the general rule of thumb that I do really advise people, including my clients, my friends, is, 
you know, really look at how much you're taking on versus how much your starting salary is. Um, now for me, and I'm happy to talk about it a little later, it, it worked out because my starting salary was actually uh, the same amount of student loans that I had taken on, mm -hmm. which was $160,000. So I took out uh, $10,000 for undergraduate. I took out $150,000 for law school. Mm -hmm. My starting salary was $160,000. And so it very much obviously did work out um, because that was the exact amount of debt that I took on. And it just so happened to be my same starting salary. But I'd be lying to you if I said that that's how I planned it because it's not. Um, and now to go to your other question on like, was I surprised by the amount? Well, believe it or not, my law school debt uh, and, and my undergrad debt, which was that small loan that I told you about, it was like about $10,000. My total student debt should have actually been $240,000 instead of 202,000 because that 202,000 was actually my total student debt. Um, it should have been 240. And so you might ask, well, why wasn't it 240? It's because I refinanced my loans. Mm -hmm. And so when you refinance your loans, it basically means you take out uh, a new loan with a private lender. The private lender pays off your other loans, which in my case were federal loans. Um, and the reason why I did that is because my interest rate was extremely high on my federal loans. My interest rate was something about eight, nine percent. And so uh, I decided to refinance because I wanted to save on interest and I wanted to cut my repayment time. And doing that saved me nearly $40,000. Uh, so yeah, even though, you know, 202 sounds crazy, 240 sounds crazier. Yes. And that's actually the amount that I was going to have to repay had I stuck with my regular federal loan repayment. Um, Either way, though, to answer your question, yes, of course, I was shocked, right? I was shocked at how much interest, you know, had grown on my loans, uh, but it could have been worse. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, definitely can always be worse, but uh, I'm glad that you brought that up about the one-to-one -one potential income versus student loan or student debt ratio as being a nice rule of thumb, because as you mentioned, it was maybe five years ago or so that uh, you went to law school and since then it's already gone up. So it's clearly the price of school and tuition is going up higher than or faster than inflation or, or wage increases. At certain points, you would have to think we it's it becomes even more important to do that calculation before going into whatever profession you, you want to do as a, as a career. Right. Absolutely. And I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's a general rule of thumb, right? It's not something that's perfect. It's not like, you know, if you have the kind of career where you're going to start off at an extremely like low salary and then jump very, very quickly, for example, medical, you know, um, uh, uh, med medical school, like when you are a resident, you make like something like what, maybe $40,000. And then upon a couple of years, boom, you shoot up potentially to 250,000. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, then yeah, maybe that's, call that an exception, if you will, right? Um, but I think generally just even having that thought of what could I potentially realistically make with this degree is so important. And it's something that a lot of people don't like talking about 
they don't like talking about it because it's like, well, I just want to go to school. I just want to go to school. I want to attain the next degree. And it's like, well, you know, that's great. But what's the, what's the cost benefit looking like? Exactly. I don't think a lot of people do that calculation. Yep. What's the opportunity cost, cost benefit, as you mentioned. And, um, and yeah, it's, it's becoming more important to do that these days and, and we'll see what happens with schooling. I mean, I feel like we're going through a transition period and uh, we don't know how it's going to look after uh, 2020. Yeah. Things are changing. Yeah. But um, you spoke about attacking the student loan debt after you realized like how much you're paying in interest. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to kind of talk a little bit more about that. So you said one of the tools that you used was refinancing and mm-hmm. it really made sense for you because your interest rate was 8 to even 9%, you said. Yeah. Um, that is high. Mine was about 7%. And I actually chose the same thing. My, I refinanced. I was in the private sector, so it made a lot of sense. If I was in the public sector, I think I wouldn't have done that. Um, so yeah. can you tell me a little bit about your thought process behind that? Was that similar? And then at the same time, what else did you do in order to kind of get rid of it? Did you do the debt avalanche, debt snowball, which mm-hmm. we've spoken about on the show, or yes. the zero-based mm-hmm. budget? Yeah. So it's a a little bit of all of that. So, um, you know, so on the first piece, refinancing was right for me because I knew that I was going to stay in the private sector and I was, you know, very confident with my trajectory in my chosen field. And so I'm a commercial litigation attorney. Um, I work at a, a law firm here in New York city I felt very confident in the fact that, yes, this is where I want to be. And this is the kind of work that I like to do. And I don't see myself making the jump into, you know, government or, uh, you know, maybe other areas of the public sector. And so refinancing makes sense for me because, I I mean, I just want to get rid of this debt and I Mm -hmm. want to get rid of it quickly. I want to, uh, you know, I want to save as much money as possible. I'm a very uh, pragmatic person and I'm big on numbers, which often surprises people because I'm a lawyer. (laughs) So people are like, really? You like numbers? I'm like, I love numbers. Um, But I, you know, I, I needed to make sure that I was getting, you know, that I was saving as much money as I could on this massive debt that I had. And so for me, refinancing made total sense. Now, if you're in the public sector, well, first of all, obviously right now, mm-hmm. right now, generally, um, you know, would I have refinanced during COVID? Probably not, you know, like probably not. I don't know though. I don't know. Um, I think that I still would have felt pretty confident about my job security, but I don't know that I would have felt so confident about it that, to the extent of, you know, yeah, in the next three, five years, I see myself realistically, uh, you know, having the job that I have because everything is just so unpredictable right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's on that point. And then I think uh, some of your other points were, you know, what was the method that I used to pay off my debt? And for me, it was... Um, I guess it was a little bit of a hybrid, you know, um, back to the whole, I'm very much a numbers person. Uh, I am a, you know, I, I, I'm a personal proponent of the, the debt avalanche because I think that being able to knock out the highest interest rate 
debt first is just advantageous because it's going to save you more money. Um, but I understand the thought process behind a debt snowball, which is actually for some of my coaching clients, I do recommend a debt snowball for them. Uh, you know, especially when they have five different credit cards, all with interest rates ranging in like, let's say, you know, the mid twenties, you know, I, I don't think that it's so outrageous to tell them that it's okay to pay off the one at 23% that has, you know, a small $200 balance and then tackle the one that has, let's say 26% with like a $2,000 balance, mm -hmm. you know? Um, so, so it's, it's very much going to be personal. It's going to be, you know, it's going to vary from person to person. But for me, I first had to tackle my credit card debt. I did have credit card debt. I had about $13,000 of credit card debt. Um, most of that credit card debt I incurred during law school. Uh, some of it was, I would say, necessary-ish. Um, and some of it was absolutely unnecessary. Uh, and so I had to tackle my credit card debt first. And that is what I did. And then I tackled my student loan. So I really, I honestly really only had two debts. It was my credit card debt. And then it was my student loan. So I guess you can call it the avalanche, but you can also call it the snowball because my credit card debt at 13,000 <laughs> was obviously smaller than my six figure student debt. Yes. So getting rid of that 13,000 was not only going to motivate you, but uh, it, it also made sense because the, the interest rate on those are just, you know, 20% uh, yeah. and higher is, it's kind of like an emergency yeah. situation. We need to get rid of that. But, uh, but yeah, thank you for sharing that. And um, I'm glad that you mentioned that it, it was kind of a hybrid because it does depend on, on you. I mean, I found myself being motivated by the, that snowball, which is when you pay the lowest one, the lowest balance off first, and you kind of just roll it into the next one. And then, mm -hmm. but my, in my mind, as you said, uh, being a numbers person, you know that the, the right decision uh, financially is the debt avalanche because you're paying off the highest percentage interest rate, um, which you don't, you don't want to pay more interest. So you would pay that one off. It just takes right. longer sometimes. So uh, I'm glad that you mentioned that. Right. And, yep. and it is, per, it is personal to, to your choice or your, your situation. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned COVID and uh, in light of COVID, I, did want your thought on how your financial goals might have changed um, after after life of uh, debt free, basically, right? So I do want to yeah. congratulate you on that. That's an amazing, <laughs> thank you, amazing accomplishment. And so now that you're debt free, we're in COVID, and how does that change your financial goals? Uh, I mean, COVID completely shifted. Uh, it, it shifted a lot. It didn't shift my ultimate, you know financial goal that like the big one that I'm working on, which is financial independence, it affected uh, just at this moment, how I approach it. And so what I mean by that is, uh, you know, after paying off my debt, everyone was asking me, Cindy, what are you going to do now? Are you going to buy a house? Are you going to invest in the stock market? Are you going to, you know, upgrade your apartment? Like, what are you going to do? And Honestly, I had been so used to living way below my means that 
I didn't really have plans to upgrade my lifestyle too much. You know, I did have plans to increase my giving. That was extremely important to me. And I'm very, very happy to, you know, be able to do that. Um, I think while I was on my debt-free journey, my average giving was about, mm, I think something like 7% of uh, my income. And now it's more at about 13%. And so I'm very happy with that because it means a lot to me. It's extremely important to me to be able to give to my parents, um, my church, my community. And so, uh, and also of course the causes that I uh, feel very strongly about. Um, but aside from that, you know, I really wanted to increase my investing dramatically. You know, I had planned to put basically what I was putting to my debt into the stock market, into investing. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, then COVID came and I thought to myself, I think what I'm going to do instead is build a lot more of my emergency fund, um, you know, build it up more. And, uh, you know, maybe some other kind of savings buckets that I have focus on those, be a little bit more paced and certainly increase my investments, but not to the level that I had originally thought. So that's kind of been my approach for 2020. And then in 2021, you know, barring any crazy life change, then I can get back to the more like pouring my, pouring a lot of my energy into investing in, in the stock market. And the reason was because, you know, COVID has made things just so unpredictable. Um, you know, I'd like to think that I have pretty good job security, uh, but you just never know. Mm -hmm. I mean, you really never know. And, you know, I need to be prepared for that. I am uh, also getting married soon, right? So hey, there congrats. are, uh, yeah, thank you. And so, you know, that there are expenses that come with that too, yeah. right? With yeah. having a wedding. And so, you know, I've, I think that, I actually think that COVID helped slow me down a little bit because if I'm going to be very honest with you, Chris, and I don't think I've really talked about this too much, even like on my own page, mm -hmm. I was a bit obsessed with paying off my debt. You know, I became like extremely obsessed with the thought of throwing, I mean, there were times I was throwing $5,000 payments to my student mm -hmm. loans at once, you know, and I became extremely obsessed with that idea of just like, like dumping money at something to get me in like that much closer to my financial goals. And I was honestly ready to start doing that with investing to just go like that extreme and that full force. And I think what COVID taught me was it's okay to slow down a little bit. It's okay to kind of just, have your financial goals, of course, in mind, um, but not to de deprive you of life's joys, not to deprive you of opportunities to, you know, maybe invest in yourself, um, to spend on things that really bring you joy. Uh, and, and also maybe to maybe even play it a little safe by building up your cash reserves, you know? Um, so yeah, so I think COVID has definitely made me slow down. Yeah, no, and I, I agree with that because uh, I've basically felt the same way after COVID. I started to realize that I was maybe a little bit obsessed with financial independence. So I I do want to get out of debt, but financial independence was that obsession for me. And I was just really going 100% at it. And then recently, I, this year, in light of COVID, I think I was just reminded that you need to 
balance yourself or or enjoy life today and yeah. and I don't know if maybe it it took covid unfortunately to make me realize that but um so maybe there's that silver lining but you're right it's just sometimes we can get so caught up in our financial goals and uh and that was that payoff was obviously yours what is your financial independence journey going to look like now if you you say you want to get there kind of in a balanced way or enjoy life a little bit more today yeah definitely you know i think that you know a good so when we talk about financial independence you know that is what i focus on i don't really focus on like the whole retiring part because Mm -hmm. you know the re of fire because i i like my job (laughs) i like being a lawyer (laughs) Um, I have no intentions of retiring from this profession anytime soon. Um, obviously, you know, I don't know what the future is going to hold for me in my 40s or 50s or anything. I'm, I'm 31 now for context. Um, but, you know, certainly right now I am enjoying the work that I do as an attorney. And I also do have my own business. So, I, you know, I don't really care to retire anytime soon, but I do want to reach financial independence as far as, you know, not necessarily needing to rely on my income from my job um, or even for my business to be able to, you know, support Mm -hmm. my standard of living, my, you know, apartment costs, my groceries and things like that. And so I think for me right now, my goal is, um, realistically i think by the age of 40 is kind of my goal to reach financial independence and to have a a good amount of money invested that i'm very confident that if anything were to ever happen i know that i can live off of my investments um but you know doing it in a in a more balanced way you know not really rushing it and and thinking of I need to deprive myself of so much so that I can reach it in like three or five years. Like, I'm just not going to do that. You know, <laughs> yeah. um, nothing, no, and definitely nothing, not <laughs> nothing wrong with that at all. And I, and I like to hear that different perspective because everybody yeah. has their own journey and that's yeah. okay. Yeah. Um, the, in the part that I'm interested in is exactly how do you go about uh, balancing it, I guess, with, do you max out your retirement accounts or do you set aside some uh, fund for maybe vacation once the world opens up? Like how do you balance knowing that you have more time now to reach this goal? You know, maybe you don't have to uh, maximize your retirement accounts, et cetera. Like, can you walk me through a little bit of how you think through that? Yeah, sure. So um, I am maxing out my 401k and I have done that uh, since I, since I opened up my 401k a couple, uh, a few years ago, um, I am maxing it out. So that's definitely, you know, something that I'm, I'm keeping, uh, that I'm doing. That is the only retirement account that I have. I don't have like a Roth IRA. Um, you know, I don't qual- my income is above the income limits for a Roth IRA. And I know I can do like a backdoor Roth, but to be very honest, um, I'm personally just not interested in having that much money in, um, uh, in retirement accounts, you know, mm-hmm. um, that that's my own personal thought, uh, maybe in the future, right. Maybe next year I'll completely change my mind and think, you know, a <laughs> backdoor is, 
is amazing and that's exactly what I want to do. But right now I'm just not interested in it. Uh, so aside from my retirement account, um, aside from my, my 401k, it's, uh, yeah, investing in, you know, just very low cost, uh, index funds, um, pretty, you know, I'm not a day trader at all. I'm not interested in it whatsoever. Um, I'm not interested in kind of actively, you know, being an active investor. So I'm a pretty passive investor, just, you know, invest in, uh, index funds and, and, um, you know, that that's been working for me so far. It's nice to, it's nice to see the highs. Of course, it's not great to see the lows, but right now I'm, I've kind of come to terms that I think the next couple of years, the economy is going to go through a lot and that's to be expected. And so I'm kind of preparing myself for that. So, you know, I'm not planning on taking out the money anytime soon, which is, I guess that's like the name of the game, right? Um, yeah. Hold yeah. your investments as much as you can. So, yeah, so that's, I, I guess that's what I'm doing as far as like my investing is concerned. And as far as like, you know, budgeting for things that I care about, um, well, that's exactly what I do. I budget for things that I value. You know, I, every month I put money in a travel fund uh, and that's so that when the world opens up, I can take a very extravagant <laughs> vacation because after this year, I think, you know, who wouldn't want one? To make um, up for all the vacations. To make up for everything. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, I had really big plans to travel this year. Like I told my fiance, like, we're going to do Australia and we're going to do like the French Riviera and Amalfi Coast. And, you know, I mean, we were thinking like big. And then COVID said, you're not going anywhere, so <laughs> stay home. Um, and yeah, so, you know, I, I've definitely, I, I've kept my uh, saving for, uh, you know, my vacation fund, my travel fund, not quite as much as I would have had I, you know, had the world actually been open right now. Um, but I am still uh, saving in that so that when it does, I can do that. And then I've also just decided to go ahead and increase my budget on things like dining out, uh, my personal spending, entertainment, you know, like my entertainment budget before was like $50 a month. I increased it to $100 a month. Uh, obviously, most of what I used to do for entertainment, I can't really do like going to the movies, going to museums, um, you know, uh, sports games, concerts, like stuff like that are mm -hmm. all things that I can't do right now. Uh, but I still find like little things that I'm able to do. Uh, yeah, my dining out budget, I increased that as well. Um, my clothing budget, I certainly did increase that because I very much do enjoy clothes. <laughs> I enjoy uh, the occasional designer sh shoes and bags. And I know that's extremely like, you know, taboo in the personal finance <laughs> community. Like, oh my gosh, you talk about like, designer bags or, or shoes like that's insane and I'm like well yeah <laughs> that's something that I like I mean you know I, I'm I'm going to give myself the okay to purchase that vintage Chanel bag after I paid off my $215,000 debt and I did and, and I, I love it I, I was actually gonna yeah I didn't mean to interrupt you but I do no, want to just say that that's um that's there's nothing wrong with that and there's no taboo here on yeah. the show but um yeah. i love the order that you did it because you didn't buy the chanel bag before you paid off the debt uh it seems it like it was you, my reward <laughs> it, it was your reward so 
um, you know, a lot of people kind of, I guess maybe the taboo is buying all that stuff and, and increasing your lifestyle before you might get out of debt. But in your situation, I mean, you, you paid off $215,000 of student debt, you, you should reward yourself. And I think that's part of life is delayed gratification. I mean, this is the time where now, you know, the delayed part would kind of catch up to you. And now you can enjoy a little bit more, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the uh, financial goals that you're, you're talking about is, is great. And I think that you're approaching it in a fantastic way. Uh, I wanted to get your point of view, I guess, from living in New York. I know real estate is, is expensive and housing can be expensive as well. Um, how does that change your plan? Do you think that being in New York uh, maybe gives you less options as far as investing in real estate or, or how have you handled housing, uh, for example? Yeah, so uh, I rent and I am planning on continuing to rent for a while. Uh, <laughs> New York City real estate is unbelievably expensive. I mean, you know, my fiance and I, we make a pretty good income and especially combined. Um, we even feel like no, it's ridiculous. Like, you know, the, the, the price of a condo, I'll never forget. We like toured a condo um, that was actually being a, a new building that was being built in our, uh, by our old place in Harlem. And we checked it out. It was a two bedroom apartment. It was 800 square feet and it was on uh, listed for $1.2 million. Oh. And, you know, we were walking around and I was just telling him like, John, I feel claustrophobic. <laughs> I was <laughs> like, I can't do this. Like, this is insane, you know? And now like, to be clear, like it was more just like, we were curious, like, let's go to the open house. Like, we weren't actually contemplating buying a $1.2 million apartment or, you know, in that case, a shoebox. Like that was not really something we were entertaining. It was more like, oh yeah, let's like, let's take a look. Let's see what um, these new apartments look like. But yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, I am planning on staying in New York City. Uh, you know, I, I totally understand there are people that say, oh, but like, you know, you could buy a mansion in like, you know, the middle of the country. And, and I'm like, well, yeah, sure. But like, who's going to live in it with me? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, my whole family, my whole, my friends, my network, my life, my career, everything is in New York City. And that's worth so much more to me than, you know, living in a big old house. And so I do plan on continuing to rent, um, you know, at least for now. And, you know, my fiance and I, we may buy uh, a rental property maybe, you know, in the next few years, um, something that we could, you know, get for a, a reasonable price, maybe fix it up a little bit and rent it out. I think that's maybe more of the approach that we'll take when it comes to investing in real estate. Mm -hmm. I don't see us necessarily, you know, like buying a single family home and calling that like our primary investment. I, I don't see us doing that at all. Uh, but certainly maybe, you know, buying like a rental property or something like that. Right. And, and I, that's a great strategy. I love New York. I'm up there all the time. And that's something that is, uh, I've noticed it's it, the rent first buy argument 
is definitely different in New York. It's uh, yeah, it, it makes more sense <laughs> to rent most of the time. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And and you spoke about family and network and um, basically just everything that you have there in New York, your community. Um, so I wanted to get your your thoughts on the importance of educating your community on personal finance um, and just kind of your background coming from a low income community uh, and a daughter of immigrants. What, you know, how, how do you feel that uh, affected your journey or your relationship with, with money? And then how do you see that paying it forward, I guess, into the community? Yeah. You know, I think that it's, it's the kind of thing where I always remember what my dad has told me ever since I was younger is, you know, Cindy, when you take the elevator up and you get to the penthouse, don't forget to push it back down to the ground floor, you know, to Mm -hmm. get those that are waiting so they can come up with you. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously he says it more eloquently because he says (laughs) it in Spanish. I'm trying to say it in English. Uh, But, you know, I think that my community is everything to me, you know, and, and being the daughter of immigrants is something that I'm extremely proud of. Uh, You know, my parents very, very humbly were able to provide everything that we needed uh, for me and uh, my two sisters in our one bedroom Bronx apartment. And I always said, no matter what happens, I'm going to make sure that I take care of my family and that I give back to my community. And one of the ways that I give back to my community is by, you know, uh, teaching them about personal finance. You know, I have a really great community over on social media. Uh, Many, many of my followers are actually, you know, from the Bronx. Many are women, many are women of color. Uh, You know, women like me that just want to see themselves represented in this personal finance space, you know, which is... I mean, if we're being honest, it is overwhelmingly white and male, right? And so to be able to have lend the voice, you know, uh, to this, this great group of people that just want to learn, also learn about money, but learn it maybe in, in a different way, in a different way that's going to resonate with them in a way that says, hey, I see you and I see your life experiences and this is what I've learned. So let me teach you now. You know, so that's one way that I do it, um, of course, through social media. Another way is I do it is through um, workshops. You know, I do a lot of speaking engagements as well, uh, where I am able to be in front of an audience. You know, well, now it's a virtual audience, um, mm-hmm. but I am able to kind of teach about the lessons learned, you know, and of course, offer just practical tips and advice on everything from, you know, how to become a better saver to, Uh, how to maybe start investing, um, how to uh, pay off debt, what to do about your credit, right? So those are all things that I think I'm very, you know, I'm very passionate about. And I am very uh, fortunate to be in the position to be able to, to do that for my community. Um, It's probably one of the biggest accomplishments that I've had, especially with my business is to be able to, you know, kind of be able to pour back into the community that gave me so much. Right. And um, increased financial literacy uh, is, is basically what, what you're getting at. And then I love it. It's what we need uh, growing up. I feel like I never got that until I graduated uh, pharmacy school. And that's when I started realizing, you know, where I was. But I did have some privilege 
baked into my story. And I'm guessing everybody kind of has some sort of financial privilege as well. So even I believe you've spoken about this uh, in other shows and, and other podcasts, and that's caught my attention is mm-hmm. coming from a low income community and the daughter of immigrants, you could be saying right now that you had n- no privileges afforded to you, etc. But you do acknowledge that you had some sort of financial privilege in mm-hmm. your life. Is that true? So, you know, I think a lot of people, especially nowadays, they think of uh, when you say the word privilege, they automatically think of uh, racial privilege, right? Mm-hmm. And so that and, and, and socioeconomic privileges that stem from that. And uh, obviously, racial privilege is something extremely massive. Um, specifically, white privilege is something, speci- uh, you know, very, very much something that's dominating our culture right now and has really set the standard for how most people are expected to live, which, you know, I have extremely strong (laughs) opinions about. Um, And especially as coming from, you know, the daughter of of immigrants in the low income community and how that has affected me and, 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 and growing up and uh, the ability to access certain things. So that, that is a type of privilege, right? Mm -hmm. White privilege is a type of privilege. Um, But what the privilege that I had growing up was a a different, a different type of privilege. See, I had the privilege of growing up in a two parent household. Mm -hmm. I had the privilege of uh, having, you know, the ability, right. Being able bodied to do things, right. No, you know, physical disabilities or anything like that. So there were so many things that had to go right in my life in order for me to get to where I am today. My life was, even though, right, uh, my family and I, we didn't have what you can say, you know, we didn't have white privilege and what you think of when, when, when you think of that term, we certainly still did have a lot of other privileges. You know, my dad had a stable union job, you know, where he was able to uh, provide for my Catholic school education, which growing up in the Bronx in the 90s was a key to ensuring, you know, that you had success, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Instead of going to my local zone school, uh, the local public school, you know, I was able to go to a Catholic school. That is a huge privilege there. Um, But the privilege that I like to talk about now is my financial privilege. I have massive financial privilege now because I am a six-figure income earner in New York City at a, you know, great law firm. I have my own business, which is, uh, you know, has, since I started it, has been profitable. And so I do have a lot of financial privilege. And I don't think that that is talked enough about in the personal finance community. Because a lot of times in the personal finance community, you know, we talk about fire and we talk about investing and this and that. And we assume that people have the same or similar privileges as we do. Right. But often they don't. Often they have lower income jobs. Often they are paying rent. That is 50% of their take-home pay. Often they're dealing with underemployment. They're dealing with being a parent and all the costs that come with raising children. For example, childcare, you know, which in New York City can easily cost you 
two grand a month, you know, to put your one-year-old in daycare. And so what we don't talk enough about is this financial privilege that we do indeed have. People that can have the, that can make the choice to invest in the stock market. You know, earlier when you and I were talking about, um, you know, what I did, what I've decided to do with my money post debt freedom and how I'm doing, I'm putting it towards travel and I'm putting, uh, I've decided to put money in the stock market, max out my retirement. That's Mm -hmm. all riddled with privilege. I have, I have the ability, I have the opportunity to do that because I do have the income to do those things. But for many, most Americans, they don't. And, and most Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. And a lot of times people say, well, oh, that's, you know, that's their fault. No, it's not. For a lot of them, it's not. You know, my parents very much lived paycheck to paycheck. And that's not because my dad wasn't a hard worker. My dad is the hardest worker that I know. You know, it's because in my dad's case, my dad was an immigrant. He did not have a college degree. He was limited in the types of jobs that he could access. Um, And there were also other barriers, for example, language barriers. You know, so this whole idea of financial independence and increased investments and, and this and that, that's not really something that can resonate with a lot of communities. And so I think that when we talk about personal finance, we need to be very, very careful with how we talk about it be very open about acknowledging the privileges that we have and then thinking about, well, how can I proactively use my financial privilege to better the communities around me? You know, whether it's actually resourcing other communities, right? By donating to uh, grassroots efforts, community organizations, whatever that may be. If you're a business owner, maybe employing people, Mm -hmm. you know, from these communities, um, you know, there's so much opportunity there, Uh, but also maybe, you know, in in the education space, right, Uh, of being able to offer information that, that does affect most Americans, especially those that, you know, are lower income, uh, for example, like credit right? Being able to resource someone else by just educating them a little bit on how credit works. You know, pretty, putting out resources like this podcast where hopefully somebody will just, you know, decide to tune in that day and something clicks with them because you've taught them something. Those are ways I think that we do give back to our community, um, which will benefit everyone all around. Yep. And, and I couldn't have said it better myself. I love the way you you went into that and not a lot of times the word privilege can be something that people don't want to talk about, um, financial privilege, et cetera. And, and in your story, $215,000 of debt is an amazing story, but is it reasonable for somebody else to maybe be able to do that? It depends. So acknowledging it. And, and I think it's something that I'm reminded uh, of by my wife actually all the time is when I'm trying to produce content, trying to recognize where my financial privilege m- might be making it seem too easy for others mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. to do, mm-hmm. you know, whatever I'm doing, or I might be coming off as saying, hey, you, if I can do it, you can do it. And that's mm-hmm. not necessarily always the case. So mm-hmm. um, I think it's important to have those conversations and 
And that's why I'm glad you went into it like that. And, and uh, it's a good way to end the show. Yeah. And um, we're definitely going to talk more about it. Hopefully, if you're down to come on for another episode, because yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't think there's enough we can talk about in terms of this financial literacy and independence, etc. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. Well, thank you so much, Cindy. And lastly, I just want to give you the opportunity if there's any where that you want the audience to connect with you, anything you have coming up that you'd like to share. Yeah, sure. So I'm uh, most active uh, on social media on Instagram. So you can follow me at zero based budget. And there is actually a really awesome event coming up uh, from uh, the financial diet. So they are the financial diet is this really big online platform that educates um, specifically women on personal finance. And they're having a digital summit on October 16th. Uh, and I'll be, you know, speaking there uh, along with many other uh, great content creators. And so, you know, if anyone's interested in uh, a little virtual conference action, <laughs> uh, you know, now in the times of COVID, we need to, you know, be uh, very much digital uh, <laughs> folks. Um, yeah, they can check me out there. So it's uh, October 16th. Very cool. All right. I will be putting that in the show notes for anybody who's interested and uh, once again, thank you so much, Cindy, for joining the show and uh, good luck on, on your financial goals this year. Thanks, Chris. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I know I did. I had a blast talking to Cindy and I just want to end the episode by going over a few things that I thought were important. One is the amount that Cindy was able to pay off in debt, 215000 uh, I know that's a big number and I know that that can seem daunting or uh, what a great accomplishment. I don't think I would ever be able to do that type of accomplishment. But I think Cindy would even acknowledge, and, and she did, that that came uh, from a place of financial privilege in a sense that she does make a high income. So that number was easier to pay off than somebody not making so much money. Um, but again, not to take away at all from anything that she did, that is still an amazing accomplishment. But I wanted to make sure that that was highlighted. Another part of the show that I found very valuable was when somebody is considering college and a profession. I think especially right now, it's very important to consider the student loan debt to income ratio. So if we went over that in, on the show, and if you guys remember, it is about a one to one, that would probably be a good payoff. This is not investment advice or, or advice, uh, financial advice. This is just our opinion and kind of a general rule of thumb that you can do what you'd like with. But that was kind of what we decided would be a good place to start in terms of finding if that return on investment would be worth it or not. Those were the two highlights of the show. And again, I thought that there were more valuable pieces as well as far as the balance path to FI that she's taking which is important for mental health while you're on this journey to financial independence. And then lastly, the importance of giving back to the community. Once, like Cindy said, uh, once you've reached the top on the elevator, making sure to push that button to go back down and help anybody else that's on the way up as well. That's what this podcast is all about. And I think that's what Cindy is on a mission to do with her coaching. And I want to encourage anybody who's interested to check out the show notes. I put a link to her website on the in the show notes below. So check that out. 
And if you haven't yet subscribed, go ahead and subscribe and leave a review. I really, really appreciate it. I take my time and I really try to get the best guests and the best content for you guys. I really want to make this show about you guys. So let me know how you feel. Email me at questions at inspiredfire.com. Leave me a review. Let me know if you want to hear more of something. Go ahead and shoot me an email and uh, I'll do my best to get that for you. So again, thank you so much for listening to the show. And until next time.